This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, new options for PA-32 owners in basic med. And young aviators flock to South Carolina. Also, AOPA doles out some cash to some very deserving flight students. And the Cirrus Vision Jet claims the Collier Trophy. All right, Dave, you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do it, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Turn right, heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. I'm David Tillis. And uh, David, I'm super excited about our guest this week. This is Larry Kelly. He's a great guy. Yeah, yeah, really. Uh, he, he owns uh, Panchito, a B-25. It's a warbird of the highest sort. Yeah, that's right. And uh, it's beautiful. beautiful. It yeah. is yeah, jinx. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is beautiful. Now, have you yeah. been up in it? Uh, I have not. Um, you have, I think, haven't you? Yeah, and uh, yeah. just for a little bit. And also, yeah. um, I rigged up a GoPro in there uh, when, he, when he took a veteran up. It was yeah. so cool. Yeah. It's a beautiful airport plane he's out of delaware yep yeah, so George, close by. does georgetown delaware it's around there yeah, yeah, yeah. okay yeah. so very cool yeah so he'll be up later on but uh, first let's run through the news real quick a lot of uh, industry aopa stuff going on uh this week first let's start with the stc so uh pa32 models there's cherokee six saratogas lances that sort of thing yeah did you know how many seats do they have okay i know this you know i'm gonna tell you why i know because okay. when i was growing up my dad went through a couple of airplanes the last one he had was a beautiful Cherokee, Cherokee Six. It was a, a nine. I want to say it was a mid seventies model. Oh, nice. A six hundred C. It was a three hundred horsepower and uh, uh, November five two two one Sierra. Oh wow, oh, man, that's a good memory. So yes, uh, his airplane has seven seats. See, now this is something I did not know. But it was removable. The seventh yeah. was removable. Yeah, so I didn't know that. I th- always thought they just had six seats, right? Uh-huh. Um, but yes, some of the type certificates do have seven seats, and that becomes an, uh, a problem, obviously, when you get into. Basic man. Yeah. Now, why did they call it a Cherokee 7? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have to ask uh, our Piper folks. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, some of the some of the type certificates, um, some of the model range does allow for 7 seats, optional 7 seats. But Basic Med does, does not. Does not, right. Yeah. Right. And so, AOPA now has an STC. If you're an AOPA member, you get this for free. F-R-E-E. That's right. We're going to give this to you. Just call us and uh, we'll help you through the process. But the, the basic idea is it's, of course, a paperwork exercise. You take out the seat if you even had it in uh-huh. there and you're done. You're going to go under basic I think that's mind. really good. Those are versatile aircraft that hold a lot. I think back in the 70s, one of the ads showed people putting a piano in yeah. one of them, <laughs> you know, but they're, yeah. they're monster airplanes yeah. and yeah. Uh, they're a fixed gear or retractable. Yep. Or, yep. Yeah. And I would love to get a, a 260 horsepower one of those one day i could probably afford something like that that's nice an old one yeah a real old one yeah <laughs> <laughs> um yeah that's great so it is by the way a hundred bucks if if you you're not, not a, a member, member but, but you, you know membership's cheaper than 100 so it's like just and, come on and the thing is to be a member of aopa you get all this good stuff including hangar talk of course mm-hmm. but um but i mean i can't say enough about some of our programs like our pps program it really helps pilots out from the legal standpoint 
you know, we've got just a lot going on. Yeah. But but 99 bucks is still a pretty good deal for STC. It is a very good deal, but you can get it cheaper just to become a member. So. That's right. I so agree. So do it. All right. So you just attended this really cool event. Um, had a great time. So tell us about it. The Young Aviator Flying. Uh, Ian, it was wonderful. And I got to tell you what, that uh, Caleb McLeod and Ryan Hunt did a great job at Triple Tree, South Carolina. And uh, Pat Hartness is uh, basically the the papa of that airfield, mm-hmm. and he's just a cool guy, really nice person. But uh, Kayla and Ryan put together a, a fly-in. They are young people. She's 19, he's 23, mm. and it's a fly-in put together by young people for young people. And so they had some RC uh, demonstration events, and even Pat Hartness said, hey, you know, I got started in flying uh, full-scale airplanes by flying ra- you know, radio-controlled airplanes. Hmm. And so it was real popular for young people. We saw a lot of college kids. We saw some younger than that as well. Okay. We saw the group from the uh, Lakeland Aero Club. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's they're, a very cool program. They're a traveling group, yeah. and they're going to be at uh, AirVenture. Mm. I ran into a couple of people that are, are pursuing their pilot certificate and a couple of people that have pursued it and are going on to be CFIs and, and really enter the uh, pilot career track. That was exactly what these two had in mind when they put that together. And it was just a lot of fun. One of the most fun things about it was a really neat dinner. Now, we did sponsor a dinner. It was like a welcome dinner on Friday night. Yeah. It, was, it was a cookout, Ian. So everyone uh, flopped uh, their own uh, burgers on a grill, and you kind of watched them, and, and there was like you know maybe six or seven grills going at the same time, and that way you could chat with other people. Yeah, Families brought their kids. And a lot of people did drive in because it was springtime in the south, hmm. and that means you know thunderstorms were yeah. always a possibility. Yeah, uh, And so some, some folks drove in, but a lot of people flew in. I, I don't have a total exact count on the number of aircraft flying in, but I did get up and uh, and shoot some aerials, and the place was crowded. Hmm. And they, they were lined up. We saw uh, some warbirds out there. We saw some Beach 18s out there. We saw a, a champ out there, a chief. Then a, a lot of a lot of Cessnas and Pipers as yeah. well, some RVs, and uh, it was pretty crowded. And people could camp or they could stay at a nearby hotel. There were discounts at the hotels, discounts for the rental cars. So did um, was it like people, their parents, uh, parents brought kids, or it was like were kids pretty much coming by themselves, or what was that like? Okay, that's a good question. Some parents brought their kids, and maybe one of the parents was an aviator, and mm. the, you know a serious aviator. The others were their co-pilots, mm-hmm. you know, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and then some were just interested in aviation and really hadn't pursued anything at all, but oh, they wow. were curious about it. Yeah. And then others were, like I said, on their way towards a certificate or a higher rating. And a lot of people in the, I would say, in the 18 to 22-year-old range. So that was really neat to see. And we spoke to quite a few of them. And uh, they were very excited. They were very gung-ho. And, and, and they had really good heads on their shoulders. Like, oh, they knew awesome. what they were going to do. Because they know that the next 20 years or so, aviation and aerospace is going to be hot, hot, hot. Yeah, absolutely. So, so promise it one next year? Or do we think we're done? One off? What's the Okay, deal? so that was a, another cool thing about it. During, like, the, the welcome ceremony and the cookout, which I got to tell you, it was fun. Mm. Just hanging out, cooking a burger, yeah. chatting with people you didn't know. Yeah. It was kind of neat. Um, so during that, Pat Hartness said, uh, he had, you know, he thanked Ryan and uh, and Caleb for putting all this together and getting it together. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, they had a pretty cool raffle, and I saw him actually whipping out a couple hundred dollar bills from oh, his own wallet oh, for that. But he said, "Hey, this is the first of what we hope will be many." Hmm. And so Pat said that he wanted that field to be a, an open and inviting environment for young people because he said, like like we say, he said at that time, he said, "Look, it, it's all for you guys. It's for the future." You know, we want you to have fun, and we want you to enjoy it, and we want you to be aviators. That's awesome. So I think it will be the first of many. I see no reason why it wouldn't. Fantastic. Cool. All make, right. Make your plans now for next year. Yeah, that's right. All right, we're going to go on. To, oh, man, you are you are a traveling man. To another event that you got to go to, which is uh, the Collier presentation, the right dinner where they do the Collier trophy. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and a big GA winner this year. Well, that was a neat thing. Ian, I have never been to one of these events before. Have you? Did you have your tux? I did have a tux. Good. And That's it was <laughs> for your wedding still? Is that the last time you wore it? Actually, I had to had to get one since then, but uh, my wedding tux fit up until probably about three or four years ago. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. But uh, no, I got another one recently. But I will say this, that it's a, it's a Washington, D.C. event. Mm-hmm. It was at the Ritz. Um, and it was a neat it was a neat event. Everyone was dressed to the nines, and it was a big crowd. Cirrus uh, Aviation won 
for their vision jet. Yeah. That's the the that's the big news of the day. And they claim yeah. this trophy, which you have seen it. It is like six feet tall. Yeah, it's thing. a beast. Yeah. It's five hundred and twenty five pounds. And and the winner gets a gets a mock up of it. Basically, they don't get the real trophy because mm. you know where the real trophy hangs. Yeah, it's in the museum at the Smithsonian yeah. uh, National, uh, you know, Air and Space Museum. Yeah. But Dale Klatmeyer was there and he accepted the award and he gave props to his brother Alan. Oh wow. Uh, who said it was, he was the vision behind the, the vision jet. Yeah. Um, and so it was really neat. I, I thought that it was and it was a place to you know see and be seen. Yeah. As sure. Well. Absolutely. Always. But, but it's an interesting atmosphere. I liked it. Yeah. Uh, I meant to say. At the top of my segment, that they brought a hundred people down from Minnesota. Wow! Yeah, that's great. You know, I think the Collier Trophy. It's like a lot of folks probably don't even know what it is or or, or how long it's been around. But I mean, this is um, we're talking uh, what it's just like. It's like the decades. Old, it's decades. like the oldest trophy in yeah. aviation. Yeah, and it's um, when you look at some of the past winners, it's unbelievable. It's a I mean, who's who. Yeah. So Cirrus is in uh, rare company here. Extremely. Now, um, now it's uh, administered by the National Aeronautic Association, mm-hmm. and uh, Greg Principato was there to help out. It's given out for the greatest achievement in aeronautics or astronautics mm-hmm. in America. Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, isn't this the same trophy that like some of the spaceships have won? Yeah. The absolutely. Designers of that. Yeah. I the mean, Rutans of the world. Yeah. We're talking the, high, the you know the top of the top here. Really phenomenal stuff. Yeah. So so Cirrus brought down about a hundred people to celebrate that, and that says a lot about that company mm, that I agree. they brought uh, their their worker bees. Yeah. You know that was kind of neat. Yeah. Very cool. Good for them, and and congrats to Cirrus. Obviously, a really incredible product. And very exciting. So, yeah, if there's any way for me to go to that next year, I'll put my bit my dibs in for it now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's talk about this top issue, and this is um, this is a really interesting one. Um, a lot more to say about this in the future, but real quickly, the FAA. You know, you remember the FBO issue. This yeah. is where certain FBOs have been stepping out of line, charging. Really, I mean, maybe you've you've been to one of these where it's like. You pull up onto the ramp, you get out, and they say, "Oh, that'll be a hundred bucks, please." When before they even give you any service, yeah, yeah. Well, we're calling egregious. That's right. Uh, pricing. That's right. So AOPA has gone after some of these with member feedback, basically solicited feedback from members. Members have written to us, given direct experience of, "Hey, this is what happened to me." Right. Compiled that data and put certain airports on notice. Now, three of uh, I think it was three initial. We actually submitted FAA. Informal complaints to mm-hmm. part 13, which is the that's the way that you can sort of raise your hand and say to the FAA, hey, I think something weird's going on here and you need to look into it. Check it out. Yeah. So at Asheville, North Carolina, there's one FBO. It happens to be a signature. So we filed a part 13 complaint and the FAA ruled on this. Yeah. And we were shut down. Yeah. Which uh, in it, Asheville. Yeah. Which I think is is interesting. And it's because the FAA basically said. Now, keep in mind, these are there are grant assurances that say, and this is the basis of our argument, that uh-huh. you have to provide services at a fair and reasonable rate. Right. And it has to be open to everybody, right? And the FAA basically said, oh, the FBI can do whatever they want. I thought it was supposed to be based on fair market rates. Yeah. It's like, well, like we're talking about, it's something that's equitable and that, like, say, say nearby airport and, you know, say Murphy or something mm-hmm. like that, would, you know, hey, it would cost this to get fuel at, at Murphy and it's this at Asheville. And it should be sort of somewhat equitable if the services are equitable yeah that's right and so you know these are the kinds of airports where this i remember one airport this is when now this is when i first started flying uh in college and so it's like every dollar mattered right uh, oh yeah and i remember showing up to an airport it was like it was late it was like midnight or twelve thirty. nobody around i parked myself uh-huh. i was gonna like walk through a gate to get to a car and it's like this car comes screaming over and stops and like, yeah, that'll be 40 bucks. No way. Yeah. And I remember thinking like, you literally did nothing for that $40. They did zero. No. They and it's sped like. Sped across the tarmac in a, in a car. Yeah. And it's like, I would have come in the next morning and paid you a parking fee happily. Yeah. Yeah. But no, now you're going to charge me 40 bucks. And so it's like, nope, see, I'm, I'm out of here. So, and that's. Did they you know, let you leave? Yeah, yeah. They did let you leave. Yeah. That's good. So that is a, I think, a very minor example of some of the stuff that goes on. There's all kinds of uh, shady practices including at Asheville, and just really exorbitant fuel rates. And There's some other airports. I mean, we were talking about this before the podcast. I've, I've landed with Dave Hirschman over at Teterboro. That that mm-hmm. place charges a, a boatload of money to land, too, mm-hmm. even for GA airports. I mean, GA airplanes. But, however, at that airport, there are a lot of corporate jets there. Yeah. And that's sort of how you do business in yeah. some of the world. Yeah, that's know. right. One thing I was going to mention that I did um, – you know, coming back from the Young Aviators uh, conference that we were just talking about, the mm-hmm. flying down at Triple Tree in South Carolina. So uh, we waited some weather out in Charlottesville, Charlottesville, Virginia. And so um, I went ahead and fueled up our 182 there. And there was a ramp fee, but it was waived with 
fuel. Yeah. So when I filled up with fuel, it was subtracted right off of the the bill. Yeah. So there was no extra fee. Yeah. And that's the fuel was was reasonable to be that's honestly. Good. That's and good. You don't want me to mention the name of the company, do you? No. That's it, you don't want me to say it was signature also? No, that's fine. I mean, <laughs> if you had a but good so, experience. But see, I don't get it. How could they be one way in Asheville and another way in Charlottesville? Well, that's a very good question. I'm not exactly sure how that is. So, so Charlottesville, how much do you remember how much it was? It was around five bucks, five and a half bucks a gallon. Yeah, if you went back and looked a couple of years ago, uh, well, not maybe not even a couple. Significantly higher. Yeah. So, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting that the prices come down. The first thing that got my attention was that there was a ramp fee to begin with. Yeah. Which it what now here's where where AOPA you know really has has put some effort to try to make transparency um, available to pilots. There was nothing. Nobody said, oh, by the way, there's going to be a ramp fee if you don't get fuel. Or yeah. I didn't see it posted. Yeah. Now, maybe it was, but I didn't see it. And maybe it was like, you know, you know, when you go to a restaurant, you see the rate, you know, the ratings on the wall, mm-hmm. the, the the scorecard, rather. Yeah. I didn't see anything like that that said it was, you know, X number of dollars to get fuel or not get fuel, how much per gallon it was. Yeah. I just kind of didn't see any of that. Yeah. That's right. It's like, you know how highways, it'll be like. You know, you're going in and a toll road's coming up. Uh-huh. And they'll, they'll have like 20 signs. Last exit before yeah. toll. Last exit before yeah. toll. It's like, okay, you have a chance to skirt this toll, right? And get off. Yeah, you have a chance to, if you don't want to pay it, to go somewhere else. With us, it's not like that. It's it like isn't. if you're flying along and you need fuel, you're going to stop. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, yeah, that'll be 100 bucks. Yeah. You know, if you fly a turbine, watch out. We're talking multiple hundreds. It goes by how, how big the aircraft is, how much it weighs a lot of times, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. So, you know, I think to make it crystal clear here, um, AOP is not looking to get anything for free, anything even, you know, significantly discounted or anything like that. We just want transparent. That was a good yeah. word you used. Yeah. Transparent, fair, reasonable. That's it. Yeah. I do agree with all that. Yep. And as a pilot, you need to know all that. It's just like knowing how much oil you have, how much fuel you have in, in your tanks, yep. that kind of thing. Just like being up on, on all the regulations. Yeah. Just need to know what we got look to look at. Yeah. So I said there's going to be more to come, and that's because this is obviously not over. I mean, just because the FAA decided to uh, strike down the Part 13 complaint, that's not the end of the process by any means. And, so, uh, and also, um, I think we did touch on this a little bit, that some of the airports that we were talking about earlier actually have changed their policies and procedures right. and pricing. Yeah. And they have made it more transparent or done away with it or opened the ramp up to, uh, to you know, another place for us to park. Yeah. So Waukegan's a great example it of that. It is, near you Chicago, know. right. Yeah, they were on this original uh, Part 13 list, and they saw that it was an issue and made changes. Yeah. Uh, put in some, I think, some self-fueling, and so, yeah, it's fantastic. Actually, they're a great example of how to do it the right way. Yeah. And they, they said, hey, we didn't really we didn't realize this, and uh, we will do A, B, and C to make it a little bit easier for aviators to get to and from here. Yeah. So... That FBO fight in general is going to be kept up, and uh, specifically, I think you'll see more out of Asheville with that with that complaint. So, okay, all right, let, hey, let's move on to cool stuff. Uh, B twenty fives, Warbirds. Oh man, Larry Kelly, he's the man. Yeah, this is a neat airplane. When I when I've uh, seen him uh, before, I saw him at his museum one time, but also over here at AOPA because he's not that far away. Yeah, and he really goes out of his way to help veterans and folks who were in World War II, you know, get back in the air. Hmm. And it's, it's got to be a labor of love keeping yeah. that airplane going. I bet it is. Yeah. So our editor-in-chief, Tom Haynes, uh, the luckiest man with the SIC rating on that airplane, uh, got <laughs> to sit down with Larry and just hear what it's like to operate it and uh, fly it and, and have that veteran reach out. So we're sitting today basically under the shadow of uh, B-25 Panchito, and uh, here with me today is uh, Larry Kelly, who's the owner of the airplane. Today we'd like to talk about you know, what's going on in the warbird community and what it takes to keep these big warbirds alive, and you know what's going to happen in another generation or two when folks who are current caretakers uh, pass them on to, to somebody, someone else and uh, look at some of the issues that, uh, that are going on in the, in the warbird community. So, Larry, thanks for joining us. Well, it's always a pleasure, Tom, and it's always good to see you. Uh, good to fly with you. you know, yeah. We've flown with you a few times in this airplane. You uh, you have, and, and I appreciate the opportunity to fly Panchito. I got uh, second-in-command type rating a couple of years ago and had some had some recurrent training not that long ago, and it's uh, it's always a pleasure. And just, uh, you know, it's a, it's an amazing feeling to get into an airplane like this, knowing, the, you know, what these airplanes were used for and the people who flew them and the great sacrifices that they made. 
So tell me about this airplane. Uh, give me a little history on Panchito. This particular airframe was built in the fall of 1944 and served with the uh, Southeast Training Command, where it was used as crew transition trainer for pilots and bombardiers, navigators, gunners, etc. They'd finished their tech schools or got their wings, but they hadn't f- learned their fighting skills. So they'd be put together as a team. They'd be assigned a combat-equipped airplane, and they'd go out and then learn to bomb, strafe, and navigate uh, as a team. Uh, and then they would be transferred out into a theater war as a replacement crew, and another crew would get the airplane, and that cycle kept repeating. After the war, uh, it went to Davis-Monthan, and where it was uh, put into the uh, mothballs, came out of mothballs in 1952 uh, for the Air Force. Then, of course, the you know, Army Air Force is previously, but for the Air Force then, it went through the Hayes conversion down in Birmingham. Uh, where they basically took the armament off the airplane, upgraded the avionics and electrical wiring, and those who modernized the airplane a little bit, served until 1959 in that capacity, then went back into mothballs, was sold in 1960, uh, became a fire bomber out in Arizona, and then was sold to Bill and Bob Howe down in uh, Florida. They mounted spray bars under the wings, put a Volkswagen motor in the back of it to run a pump, <laughs> wow. and the tank from the chemicals when it was a fire bomber was used to put... Uh, chemicals in, and they sprayed mosquitoes and sprayed orange orange groves for a number of years. The airplane then was so badly corroded and so badly worn out that they donated to the SST Museum, uh, who parked it out in the Florida weather outdoors Mm. for another decade and a half, and the airplane literally just rotted. The museum went defunct. Tom Riley got the airplane, took the wings off of it, towed it to his restoration shop, and over about the next eight years, then took the airplane completely apart, reskinned most of the airplane, rebuilt the center section, and restored the airplane back to an original J model configuration. And they, it sold it to three guys out of Texas, and their pastor was a fellow named Bob Miller, who happened to be the tail gunner on a B-25 named Panchito oh. with a 396 Bomb Squadron, 41st Bomb Group in Okinawa during the summer of 1945. So they painted the airplane in the markings of their pastor's airplane, right. Bob Miller. And Bob Miller's identical twin brother, Bill Miller, was the top turret gunner. Oh, Only wow. five air crews in World War II had twin brothers serving on the same air crew. Hmm. And uh, the original Panchito uh, was a combat airplane of 41st Bomb Group. It was a replacement airplane for the 41st. They had flown G models with the cannons during their first tour down in the Central Pacific come back to Hawaii, was getting outfitted, new airplanes, new crews. We're going to be sent to Okinawa as part of gearing up for the invasion of Japan because then, you know, we fully expected to still be invading Japan. And uh, so with the 41st Bomb Group, they all uh, arrived in Okinawa in uh, late June 1945, uh, still had some sniper fire, et cetera. But uh, the pilot of the airplane, Don Seiler, a uh, young captain uh, who had volunteered. He had enough points to rotate home, but he volunteered mm. for another combat tour. And uh, when they arrived in Okinawa, he was a senior pilot in the outfit. He was the old man. He was the guy that the new pilots had to fly with, new replacement pilots had to fly a combat mission with him before he would release them to fly their own airplanes into combat. Mm. And he was 22 years old. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That really says, 22 something, years old. Some, yeah. says something about uh, the age of those guys. Particularly Miller during, twins were 19. War. Wow. So that's that's quite a history of the of the namesake and, and of the airplane itself. Clearly, you know it well. So how did you end up with the airplane? <laughs> For 30 years, I owned a pharmacy with a partner uh, in, uh, in Maryland, and we serviced nursing homes, long-term care, as well as retail, medical supplies, all this. So it was – for 30 years, all I knew how to do was work seven days a week. And then someone came along and offered us what we thought was stupid money, and we were stupid enough to took it. And uh, so I woke up on a Monday morning after selling my business, and, and I can finally buy the airplane of my dreams, which was the B-25. So oh. I called Tom Riley and said, Tom, I want to buy a B-25. What's available? And he said, well, Panchito is for sale. Uh, Rick Corf owned it, and Rick was selling it. It was down at, at Valiant Air Command at the time down in Titusville. I asked who was the broker. I, I called the broker. The broker told me that, yes, it was for sale. It told me what the price was. sounded reasonable. But he told me he had a buyer from France that was on his way over. It was on an airline flying mm. over here to, to a pre-buy <laughs> inspection on it and buy the airplane. Uh-huh. So real quickly, I not really thinking much about it, I, I said, well, call Rick. Ask him, will he take a $10,000 cash non-refundable deposit? Mm. If I buy the airplane by Friday, it goes toward the, uh, the purchase of the airplane. Right. If I don't, he gets to keep it. 
So with that, I had the airplane from Monday to Friday to buy it or walk away. Right. So I called Tom. Tom jumped on a Cessna, borrowed a Cessna, went to his bank, got $10,000 cashier's check, flew down to Fort Lauderdale, gave him the deposit. Of course, I refunded the money to Tom, but Tom was a good friend. He'd right. do that for me and started doing the title search, those kind of things. And by Friday, I owned a B-25, but the <laughs> there's some people uh, uh, question this, but truly – I walked out into the air, into the hangar after finishing all the paperwork and going through the inventory of spare parts and all this, and I walked out, and I'm standing there staring at the airplane. I said, Tom, how do you get in it? <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea how to get in. I'd never been in one, never flown one. Wow. And now I had one. Right. Well, that is quite a story and uh, so much for retirement because I guess my guess is keep maintaining one of these things and funding it and, and the mission that you have for it is uh, is no retirement job. Well, I re- wasn't really retired at the time. Uh, you know, with selling a business like that, you still have to stay on for a number of years when you go right. through transition for customer continuity, yep. those kind of things. But I didn't have to worry about meeting payroll anymore. Right. I didn't have to answer the pager and go out in the middle of the night to deliver IVs, you know. I didn't have to stand by a phone all the time right. anymore. I could have a vacation again, which I had very few in all the years we were in business. Yeah, but it's, it's un, undoubtedly it's kept kept you busy. I know it's kept you busy because I've been around you at air shows and, and, and places where you've had the airplane. Uh, what's its mission? You know, when I first climbed in the airplane, I, you know, first I was overwhelmed by right. everything. I couldn't even figure out how to start the thing. But on that first flight from Titusville over to Kissimmee, you know, I had an overwhelming sense of uh, respect, you know, for a nostalgia, I guess, for the veterans that had, I'm flying an airplane for fun, but most of these guys would leave a letter laying on their bunk to go home to their mm-hmm. girlfriend or their mother because they didn't know if they were coming back. In 1943, your chance of surviving your 25 missions would lessen your chance of winning a coin toss. I wasn't having to face what they were facing. Right. And it decided right then, you know, I already had, you know, Bamboo Bomber and, and, and an L-16 and, and others. So we already had been doing some veteran stuff. But at that time, I decided, you know, this is something Walt Ulrich, who founder of Warbirds America, had said really sunk in during that little quick 20-minute flight. So we were temporary custodians of these icons of our military history. Those of us that are privileged enough to own these airplanes and maintain these airplanes, because not only to own it, but I, I spent a lot more time turning wrenches on it as the mechanic on the airplane. But those of us privileged enough to own these these old icons of our military history owe it to today's generation, to tomorrow's generations, to keep them flying for the memory of those that, you know, went into harm's way day after day, right. stood in line and volunteered to uh, to go in the air. Every airman who went in the air was a volunteer. Hmm. And we've done and we've continued that. You know, I, I like to think that uh, continue to try to fulfill a mission just over at your Wings and Wheels event here yep. just a few weeks ago in early May. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a 94 and a 96-year-old uh, veteran. One yep. was a combat medic in Europe, went on board D-Day plus six, spent the whole rest of the war, you know, patching up soldiers and, you know, in the fields of France and Germany. And the other 103 combat missions as a ball turret gunner. And to him, it, w- it was like giving him his, his daughters called me a couple of times and just talked about what a new sense of purpose he seems to have. He, right. he, he had just sort of withdrawn from life. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden he realizes he is somebody. He was somebody. All the interest that was shown in him over there, uh, it's just like supercharged him again, which is mm. great. This guy 103 times had to leave that letter lay on his bunk. Wow. That's something. So – the B-25 obviously is most famous. Its fo- most famous mission was the, the Doolittle Raiders. Uh, and, of course, we've, many of us read the book. We've seen the movies. Uh, tell us, uh, from your point of view, what did that mean from a war standpoint? What all was involved? What all did Doolittle have to do to a B-25 to be able to land it on an aircraft carrier and take off? Well, well they didn't land well, it I mean, on the carrier, but take, just take, take off. off. Right. Yeah. A lot of people think Doolittle plant, it was Doolittle's idea. It was not. There was a naval officer uh, who was leaving Norfolk to fly to Washington, overflew the Norfolk Naval Air Station, and saw some Army bombers doing takeoff landing on an aircraft carrier painted on the runway, just like the old runway 1028 here used to have an aircraft carrier painted on it because this was a Navy training base in World War II. So his naval officer got the idea, went to Admiral King. Admiral King ran the idea up to General Arnold, and General Arnold was made because Roosevelt was demanding a strike back against mainland Japan after Pearl Harbor. Yep. Roosevelt knew we had to do that. We had four months of nothing but bad news. The surrender of Corregidor, the Bataan Death March, everyone's heard of that. Yep. You know, nothing but bad news coming out of the Pacific Theater War. Roosevelt wanted a strike back. He was demanding a strike back. Mm. And this looked like a possibility of doing it. Something never been done. The Army cooperating with the Navy on a joint mission. This was the first joint mission the Army and Navy ever did together. Oh. 
So Hap Arnold contacted his buddy, who he had flown with in World War One, Jimmy Doolittle, who many people also don't know, earned the first Ph.D. in aeronautics from MIT. So not only was the most famous pilot in the world at the time, but the guy was an engineer. So Arnold contacted uh, Doolittle about feasibility of doing it and then told him it was going to be from, you know, from 500 foot from an aircraft carrier. The B-25 was the only airplane that could meet the mission with the short takeoff capability over the short distance and the wingspan narrow enough to clear the island. Right. So Doolittle then was brought in to plan the mission. Uh, and not to lead the mission. He wasn't supposed to be on the mission. Mm. But at Eglin, one of the pilots got sick, and Doolittle saw his chance. He wanted to be on the mission, so he flew back to Washington. Also, there was never one written order. Mm. All the orders regarding the planning of the Doolittle raid was always done verbally. Not one word was ever put down on a piece of paper planning that mission. Doolittle goes back to Washington, goes into Hap Arnold's office, had completely rehearsed. Well, you know, Hap, I've, I I know these boys. I've planned this mission. Nobody's any better equipped to this, you know. I, and Hap Arnold cut him off and said, Jimmy, do you want to lead the mission? <laughs> yes, sir. Doolittle smelling a skunk, knowing that his friend was, his, his close friend was not going to deny him, but he smelled a skunk. Oh. So he said, uh, Hap Arnold told Jimmy, he said, well, if it's okay with, with harm, it's okay with me. But General Harmon was his chief staff. Uh-huh. So Doolittle, real quickly, he was a very smart man, knew he was smelling a skunk. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. He saluted, stepped out of Hap Arnold's office, bolted down the hallway to General Harmon, Harmon's office, right past General Harmon's secretary, right into Harmon's office. Harmon startled General Harmon <laughs> and uh, said, Harm, Hap says it's okay if I lead the mission, if it's okay with you. Well, if, if Hap says it's okay with well, I guess it's okay. <laughs> sure. Yes, sir. Saluted, bolted out the hallway, and as he was sprinting down the hallway, he heard Arm's phone ring, and he said, "But Hap, he said you said it was okay." <laughs> so that's how Doolittle uh, actually was able to lead the mission, working the system. Yeah, working the system. But uh, the result of the mission, though, you know, it was it was a top secret mission. Right. The idea originally was to get within about a, about three hundred miles and launch the bombers, bomb Japan. It was not a suicide mission. People right. that say that are totally uninformed. Right. The plan was to take all the airplanes, bomb Japan, land in Chuchao, China. Fuel was going to be stationed there, and NDB was going to be stationed there. They were home in on that, land there, refuel the airplanes, and fly on to Kunming, and the airplanes were going to be given to the AVG, the Flying Tigers, right. uh, and then to form a bomber squadron around what they were trying to do there. You know, they were basically a mercenary outfit, yep. you know, former American pilots who were flying for the nationalist Chinese. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, as we know, they were spotted early. Yep. Uh, they had to launch early. They threw extra cans of gasoline in. Uh, now, not knowing for certain if they were, had enough fuel to reach Chuchao, Doolittle offered anybody who didn't want to go could stand down. They had extra crews because yep. they had trained 20 crews. Mm. Only 16 airplanes were loaded. Several airplanes had malfunctioned, and they were left in a the hangar there at Alameda. So they had replacement crews. All the crews that were trained were all put on board the boat. Not one man would walk away. And many were trying to bribe their way onto an air crew. Wow. But uh, the result was they had to launch early. They now, instead of bombing at night and arriving in China in the daytime, they arrived bombing on a day like today, a beautiful sunlit you know, day, mm-hmm. right over mainland Japan. Not one airplane was lost. They thought they would lose at least half of the airplanes, even on a night raid. Mm. Not one airplane was lost. Total surprise. Then they picked up a tailwind. And they all made it to the Chuchao General area, but it was in a storm. They couldn't navigate. The NDB, the airplane carrying NDB crashed and never made it there. There was no fuel station. Mm. It was so secret, nobody even told them that when they took off, they had no fuel. They had no beacon. They didn't know it. Mm. So they took off flying into uh, pretty much every man on his own. Wow. And, you know, some ditched, some bailed out. But the result of the raid was startling. The Japanese lost face. The Japanese military lost face. Mm-hmm. And that's huge in, in that culture. Right. And so they had to plan. They knew, you know, they'd been spotted. They got a radio signal. Yep. The Japanese military were expecting a raid on the 19th. The picket boats that spotted the raiders and forced them to launch early radioed in. It was enemy fleet, aircraft carriers. Mm. Well, but the Japanese knew the carrier base airplanes only had a range of about 300 miles. Right. They would have to steam another day westward before they could launch their carrier base airplanes. Instead, though, they launched bombers right then. So the, the the Japanese military started planning for a raid on the 19th, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden on the 18th, the raiders were overhead. But it was a huge loss of face for the military, who had told the Japanese people and the emperor that for two millennia, 
the island fortress of Japan had been protected by his kamikaze's divine wind, and they could not be attacked. Now you got American bombers overflying the Emperor's Palace. What a huge embarrassment. So knowing it was the aircraft carriers that they missed at Pearl Harbor, the aircraft carriers were out on maneuvers during an attack on Pearl Harbor. They had to move ahead their war plan to capture Midway Island, and from Midway, then they were going to launch and, and find the American fleet, sink the rest of you know the American fleet. Right. That was their mission. But instead, we'd scramble what assets we had and uh, basically laid wait. The island of Midway was reinforced by the Marines. And you know the Battle of Midway. We sank four of their aircraft carriers in a very short period of time. It was a turning point of the war in the Pacific. So 80 men, 16 airplanes turned the, the course of the war in the Pacific. The Japanese never had another major victory. Hmm. And the Hornet... Uh, was sank at the Battle of Santa Cruz. The Hornet, the aircraft carriers they launched from, never saw its first birthday before the Japanese sank it. Wow. They swarmed it because by then they knew it was a Hornet that had launched the Raiders. Wow. But at the Battle of Midway, it was Torpedo Squadron 8 that launched off the Hornet that was the first group to attack the Japanese fleet. Every man was lost. Every airplane was shot down. Only one survived, Innocent George Gay. But now, when the second fleet arrived... Japanese airplanes were on the deck. They had fuel lines all over the place, bombs, ammunition. Mm. They were refueling. They didn't have any top cover because they had all you know, ran out of ammunition and fuel, shooting down Torpedo Squadron 8. Right. So it was a huge victory for the Americans at the Battle of Midway. So the Doolittle Raiders, that raid, forced the Japanese to change their war plans, which caused them to lose these assets at the Battle of Midway mm. and was the turning point of the war as early as April of 42. Wow. And all because of a B-25 or a bunch of B-25s. The what, only what, airplane that could do it. What What was the B-25s? Did, did it have a role in Europe much, or was it was it mostly the in B-25, the Pacific? The uh, B-25 was used in every theater of the war. Mm-hmm. It was used in every major campaign of every theater of the war. Uh, Italy, North Africa, Europe, yes, all over. Wow. By all the Allied Air Forces. Wow. You know, the British flew them. The French flew them. So here we are 75 years later. Uh, sitting next to Panchito, uh, which uh, did the training there at the end of the war. What's it take to keep a, an airplane like this going? Uh, this this one, obviously, I mean, had a very rough life, uh, was <laughs> not much left of it when they when they did the restoration. And so, um, you know, it's relatively young, I guess, uh, comparatively speaking, but there's lots of it are still, still an old airplane, old systems, that sort of thing. So what's, what's it take to keep it going? Well, cubic dollars, for one thing. <laughs> Uh, parts have become very expensive. Uh-huh. Some parts we've ran out of. Uh, brake rotors, for instance. You know, when I bought the airplane, I could buy a brake rotor for twenty dollars, and the vendor would throw in a, a free stator. And there's fifty-six rotors and uh, uh, sixty stators. You know, in the uh, you know in the airplane, uh, four brake packs. Now mm-hmm. they're custom made at one hundred thirty-five dollars a piece, from twenty dollars to one hundred thirty-five dollars. Wow. Engine overhauls used to be around twenty-five, twenty-eight thousand dollars. Now they're around ninety thousand. Prop the five hundred hour AD on the props used to be about fifteen hundred dollars. Now they're five thousand dollars for the AD compliance. So, you know, there, there's a natural inflation to some of that, but it's it's outstripped normal inflation. Right. Uh, so dollars is one point, but more importantly, it's the skill and the technology that is dying off. You go back, you know, to my parents and our parents, your parents, et cetera. The a lot of the sheet metal work, the uh, uh, the mastery of doing the work that was went into building these airplanes was pretty commonplace back then. Mm-hmm. But today, a lot of this is not taught anymore. Radial engines are not taught anymore in A&P schools. Uh-huh. There may be some schools that still do it. Our, our school here at Georgetown, they have a radial engine down there. But I bring the students down here and teach them about radial engines. Mm. So the technology of working on the engines, the, the knowledge base is dying off. I tried to learn as much as I could by immediately getting in deeply involved in the maintenance of the airplane. I earned my A&P on this airplane and my A. And systems are so dramatically different. We see now more and more and more where modern trained mechanics are trying to figure out how to redo a, a gear retraction cylinder on the airplane and wind up ruining one or, or, or messing one up mm. because they don't know how this, this or that is supposed to be done. So the skills are dying off. You know, there's fewer and fewer master craftsmen. There's still people like Tom Riley out there, Gary Norville, uh, Carl Scholl, and Tony Rispin. They now own the type certificate for the B-25. And one reason we mm. have such good part support is Carl and Tony, back decades ago in the 60s and the 70s, as these airplanes were all being retired and parts inventories were being surplused by the train load, they bought it all. Mm. And so now we get I get better part support on this airplane than I do on my twin Comanche. <laughs> but even with that, some of the stuff 
they don't have anymore. A lot of the consumables are, right. are getting very, very hard to get. So it's skills and corrosion control. Yeah. You know, metallurgy then is not the same as metallurgy today. You'll have two pieces of skin right next to each other. One will suddenly just break out in exfoliating mm. corrosion, and the piece right next to it is in perfect shape. And the year before, you inspected that same area and found nothing. Oh. So corrosion control, finding, looking, searching, staying on top. We had a left vertical stabilizer off this year. Had it down to Gary Norville's to have a repair. We had all kinds of uh, corrosion control to do this and that, you know, little places right. around the airplane. There's always that search for corrosion control that you don't have to look quite as hard in, in more modern airplanes. Mm-hmm. I've heard you talk about the tires. You spoke of consumables. There, there's a consumable. Uh, what, what's it take to replace a set of tires now that you have to have them specially manufactured, right? Yeah, there's a Desert Tire is the only source of tires. They have a contractor up in Pennsylvania that manufactures the 47-inch SC tires that's used by the A26, the B25, and the PBY Catalina. Mm-hmm. If there's any others that use it, I don't know. I know those three all use the 47 SC tire. Uh, they used to be $1,500 a piece. I thought that was pretty exorbitant for a tire. Right. They are $5,700 now a piece. Wow. Another $800 for a tube and about 100 bucks to have them mounted on a wheel. Hmm. And you get about 200 landings out of a set of tires. Wow. And that's the reason you're so careful on this thing on, on landing and, and with the brakes. Well, that's one reason for right. the brakes, being so careful. But, you know, you learned the, the hard way on the brakes in this airplane. They have no feedback through right. the pedal. Yep. And they are designed to be able to stop a 40,000-pound a airplane. And we're flying around at about 20,000 pounds. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're extremely effective and extremely touchy. So. Yep. We stay off the brakes on the runway for one purpose, yeah, not to wear out the tires mm-hmm. and not lock up a wheel. But more importantly is you don't want to depart the runway when you happen to grab one tire, you know, one wheel or one brake you know, a little tighter than you grab another brake. So right. on the runway, as, as you know, we teach people brakes on this airplane have one purpose and one purpose alone on this airplane on a runway, and that's to prevent you from rolling off the far end of the <laughs> runway. <laughs> And they, they heat up so fast. For instance, there was a pilot uh, not too far from here a couple of years ago doing his recurrency training, and he landed on a 5,000-foot runway, got on the brakes really hard to make the midfield turnoff, mm. turned off, pulled into a tie-down spot, switched pilots. The other pilot got in, and the airplane wouldn't move. And that one landing, getting on the brakes that hard, welded. Oh, my gosh. Because the brakes are metal to metal. There's, yep. It's a bronze rotor, you know, a, mm-hmm. a bronze-coated rotor against stainless steel stators, and mm-hmm. it built up so much heat they welded. Oh, my gosh. Wow. And yet, in some cases, particularly the, the smaller warbirds, there are actually some uh, models that are there's more flying today than there were 20 years ago. Uh, and that's true in even B- B-25. Is that right? There's several in restoration right now. Yeah. The airplane that's only two serial numbers, actually there's only one serial number between this one, this is 34, number 36, 430734, 4307-36, mm-hmm. two airplanes numbers later is being restored at Michigan right now. Wow. Sandbar Mitchell. Right. So what's that say about the Warbird community? What's going on there? Well, the the value of the airplanes are appreciating rapidly. Mm-hmm. It's a uh, it's an, a collectible item that they're not really making anymore right. of. And you know, if, even notice in the movie industry mm-hmm. in recent years, how many new movies have been made? Blockbuster movies, Hacksaw Ridge, et cetera, right. about World War II. Yep. There's been a whole new renewed generation for that because for a lot of people, for for you and I, it was our parents of that mm-hmm. generation. But for this millennial generation, it's the grandparents. And I think a lot of people are starting to go back and hopefully remember a little bit about what a true global conflict that was to really decide was the world going to be ruled by totalitarian governments or by free governments and, and democracies. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a, it was an all-out effort by everyone from the housewife saving her bacon grease to going into bomb manufacturing, giving up her aluminum pots and pans, Everyone, you know, the women went into the defense industry, started building airplanes. The men were off at war. It was a total, total conflict. And people began to recognize that. And I think that's leading a lot of, to this. You know, the, the respect that people are starting to have for the military. Remember the Vietnam generation where everybody was spit on the soldiers? Yep. And now yep. you pass a soldier. Anybody's even, I wear just a regular old flight suit because it's, it's fire retardant. Right. And people, I was not in the military, but people come up to me and say, thank you for your service. Mm. Wow. Like the old gentleman, 103-year-old that we flew, I, I was sitting talking to him, and I said, thank you for your service. And he teared up, and he said, don't thank me. Thank all those that we left over there. People are starting to get a whole new respect for that. And the majority of Warbird owners, I say the great majority, there's a few out there, a few wahoos that just do it for the glory of it and to be seen, right. but the great majority 
how the tremendous respect that we do for that generation and do anything in the world to try to keep their stories alive. And we're the ones doing it. The government's not out there keeping these airplanes flying. It's private ownerships that's doing it. Yeah. So is there another generation out there? I mean, the millennials, uh, are, are they going to have the same level of, level of interest? Are they going to have the financial wherewithal to kind of pick up the next generation and, and go with it? Boy, that's a great question. I wish I knew the answer to that. I'm hoping they do. Uh, I'm hoping the stories, you know, of many, like the gentleman that we met a couple of weeks ago, I hope those stories, you know, keep staying alive. I hope that, you know, a lot of the things that we've done with the reunions that I was able to, had, you know, was honored to be able to arrange at the, at the Air Force Museum for the Doolittle Raiders, the you know, right. 68th reunion, the 70th, the 75th, delivering the Congressional Gold Medal out to the Air Force Museum for the Doolittle Raiders, you know, those kind of events. We brought a lot of recognition back to not just the Doolittle Raiders, but to that generation. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm hoping that people will try to keep that alive. I'm right. hoping to do. And I'm hoping that there's enough. We've got some. We have one fellow that comes down here from Dover Air Force Base, Joe Green. Mm-hmm. I think he's 22, 23 years old. I think he's a, uh, uh, he works with the C-5s. I right. think he's a crew chief on C-5s. But all the time he gets off, he comes down here and turns wrenches in his airplane. He loves doing it for all the right reasons. Mm-hmm. Not because he can be seen with the airplane like some people, but because he wants to do a little part and help him keep these things flying to tell the story. He's heard so many stories, he wants to do his little part of trying to tell those stories. When you take it to air shows and wings and wheels uh, like you did with the OPA a few weeks ago, what do younger people say when they walk up to the airplane? Do they have an understanding of what it is or any appreciation for its history? A few do. I'm always amazed when a 9- or a 10-year-old comes up and says, are, are these Dash 29s or Dash 35 or 2600s? Which happened to me up at Frederick. Oh, wow. A little kid 9 years old and says, do you have Dash 29s or Dash 35s? Oh, wow. I said, how'd you know that? <laughs> I said, I have Bendix carburetors that are Dash 35s. The kid knew the airplanes to that detail. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, my son, you know, uh, my son Josh, when uh, when he was could hardly even put two words together to make a sentence, I could point to airplanes in a, in a picture book. I'd point to a, a, a P-38, and I'd say, what engines? He'd, V-1710-111. <laughs> you know, uh, he would call the engines out. Right. You know, I, amazing. If some kids are like that, there are some that are true fanatics. Right. And I, I keep being amazed at how many 20s and 30s generation are just fanatical mm-hmm. about the history of World War II. Yeah. And uh, they want to study it. They want to be part of it. One of the ladies that comes up here and volunteers with us was telling us her doctor. She was in a doctor's office yesterday. He asked what they've been doing because you know, they've known each other for decades. And she said she's coming out here and helping volunteer and doing you know work out here. He wants to come out here. And he's mm-hmm. a young guy. He's just fanatic. And then all of a sudden, it, it, he starts telling her about all the models that he builds and this wow. and that. So, wow. So there is hope. There is hope. Uh, I'm encouraged Excellent. by the, the, the 30th generation, the number of them that are still interested in it. Yeah. What advice would you give to somebody who's looking to, to buy an airplane like this? You have to look past the purchase price. The purchase price of the airplane has got to mean nothing to you because maintaining it and keeping it flying is the issue. Parts inventories, support, tooling, expertise in being able to maintain it. Mm-hmm. If someone wants just to buy the airplane so they can be seen flying the airplane, then that's going to be very short-lived. Mm-hmm. If you're not planning ahead for who is going to maintain it and what skill level do they have to maintain an airplane with these systems, everything is dramatically different on this than modern airplanes. And some similarities, but a lot of differences. So. Skill level and maintenance, parts support. Some airplanes have pretty good parts support, like the B-25. Others, like Tom Riley, is, is, is rebuilding the uh, the uh, XP-82, the prototype twin Mustang. You know, talking about somebody having a hard time finding mm-hmm. parts. There are no flying twin Mustangs. Right. He's building this one, and there's one other one in restoration uh, that Pat Harker's restoring up. You know, so they're having a, a heck of a time trying to find parts. So some airplanes have pretty good part support. So if somebody's looking to maintain or to buy a Warbird and maintain and keep it flying, make certain that you're, if, you, if you don't have access in that community, get into that community of people who own those airplanes. Talk to them first. Right. If you're looking at a P-51, go talk to people on P-51s. Go down and see Lee Lauterbach and mm-hmm. talk to Lee about flying the P-51. Do you have the skill level to do this right. and not, you know, create a, a, a smoldering hole out there, you know, in an asphalt somewhere because you you have more, you know, have a thicker wallet than you have skill levels. That's happened way too often. 
if someone is looking to maybe get into Warbirds, because a lot of people think that's really macho or it's mm-hmm. a cool thing to do, if there's one particular airplane that you love, get into that community. Find out who the people are, who's the leaders in that community. Talk to them. Get advice from them and find out, is that really what you want to do, or do you really want to get a T6 first and build your way up? Or right. do you really want to start like Ezra Rickards did? Ezra bought a, he bought a Stearman, started flying the Stearman. Then he bought a T6, mm. f- flying the T6. Then he got his Mustang. But before he flew the Mustang, he goes down and flies with Lee Lauterbach. He right. goes through Lee's complete checkout program before mm-hmm. he ever tries to fly the one he bought. He was doing it the smart way. Too many people out there have, have tried to the other way. Right. And the smart way is to get into the community first and learn it the same way. Great advice for somebody who, who might be thinking of making that big leap. I uh, appreciate you. Uh, sharing that with us. I also appreciate the support that you give to this airplane and what you, the mission that you have for it to make sure that veterans who, who want a, a chance to fly and experience it again get the opportunity to do that. So thank you for caring for this airplane. Well, and, and, and I appreciate what AOPA does to help you know with keeping recognition for what not just what we do, but for what a lot of Warbird people are trying to do with keeping alive the story. It's not just about a really cool old airplane. It's about keeping alive with the story of, of all the veterans that you know that made it free so we can sit here and do this. We can sit here and have this fun with all these old airplanes. Well, Larry Kelly, uh, Delaware Aviation Museum, uh, thanks for maintaining the airplane and taking time with us here at uh, Georgetown uh, Airport in Delaware. Appreciate it. All right, thanks. David, I'm jealous. You got to go for a ride. I got to do that sometime soon. I recommend it highly. Yeah. Now, are you going to get your SIC rating in uh, that plane? I don't know about that, but uh, yeah, that's very cool. Oh, very cool man. stuff. I, I, I hear the gauntlet hard. down there I for know. that. I hear it's hard to fly, so um, I don't know. Good challenge, I suppose. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> all right. I think that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. You can find us at aopa.org slash hangar talk. We're on iTunes and on the Sporties Takeoff app. All right. Thanks, Dave. We'll see you next time. See you, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.